Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Ahoy, and welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the dirt. That'll make sense in a minute, everybody. A podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. Yar. <laughs> and I'm Amber. And welcome. I don't know. I have no context for this. Uh, and welcome to the first episode of The Dirt at Sea. <laughs> so uh, we're doing a themed month this month that isn't Spooktober or Pride. Hey. Um, we really do have hidden depths. Much like the ocean. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So it's summer here in our hemisphere and temperatures are climbing mm. as they are everywhere. But like here Not, for summer reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So yep. Anna and I have started thinking wistfully about ocean breezes and splashing around in cool water. Uh, so in lieu of a trip to the dirt's lavish beach house. <laughs> <laughs> Eh. Ah, ah. If only. Ah, I laugh at that. Um, we're, <laughs> which I also pitched this as the dirt walks into the ocean. But <laughs> I mean, my version's are, more fun. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like the dirt boogie uh, boards. Eh? We are bringing you a whole month of episodes built around the relationship between people and the sea. Uh, so. I got my floaties on, so let's dive right in. Splash! Oh, God. Was, this is the, this is the uh, sound design that Anna's yep. been talking about adding. <laughs> Just me saying onomatopoeic <laughs> words. So according to NASA, there are currently around 372,000 miles of ocean coastline worldwide. The, the National Aeronautic and Sea Agency? Yes. Or the Ocean We Can See From Space Agency. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that has fluctuated over time as sea levels rise and fall, but it gives us a rough estimate to work with. It's probably been around that number since a long time ago. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I just... I just are <laughs> differently situated. Yeah. Like when the, okay. when the ocean level of, goes down, there's... It's just a bit different. of... Yeah ebb and flow here hey uh i know oh. this is your job <laughs> uh well i just wanted to highlight that there is plenty of seaside real estate on this planet and people have taken advantage of that since before homo sapiens was the only human around so i have divided this episode amber into three sections based on the simplest way i could think of to categorize marine resources category one food category two not food category three means of travel and there might be some things we talk about that overlap within those categories or outliers. We'll see. Much like an actual fruit de la mer platter, this episode is going to be a mix. Or frutti de mare. If, you know, that's, those are the two languages I know how to say that in. Mariscos. <laughs> Mariscos, that's right. Yeah. 
<laughs> I got one. Tell that us. was what that. Please leave that silence. I and as I tried to think of the one. sound, I'm gonna sound design some gears grinding. <laughs> Uh, so here we go with the actual Free de la Mer part of the episode. And my deepest apologies to our Patreon subscribers who may have noticed in the newsletter that I used the wrong definite article. Gendered nouns always trip me up. And in this case, mare is masculine, but uses feminine articles. Happy pride, everyone. Gender's not a binary. Okay. <laughs> spicy when I wrote this. Uh, I'll start with the oldest examples of people enjoying seafood that I could find. And these people weren't homo sapiens. Hey, it's Neanderthal surf and turf. Specifically surf. We're in what's today Portugal, about 20 miles south of Lisbon, at the site of Figueira Brava. Possibly Figueira. Figueira? Not sure. Today the site sits right on the coast, but when Neanderthals were around, the coast would have been about a mile away. Not bad for, you know. Just a little walk to the beach. Yeah. You know, the the uh, rents are reasonable. Yeah. It's not so it's close not to the fall ocean. into the yeah, ocean. It's true. Oh, man. Like that house on Cape Hatteras that just tootled what off into it? the ocean. At, like Rodanthe. Yeah. I, um, I had, a, I had a, a, uh, an employer whose family home fell oh. off into the ocean. That's rough. Yeah. Ooh. So the site. Uh, the Neanderthal site was first identified by archaeologists in the 1980s. And then in the 90s, a research team went back to do some more excavating. And in a small nook of the cave, archaeologists found a big cache of remains from aquatic animals, including fish, mussels, shark, dolphin, crustaceans, and seals. So this isn't the only piece of evidence that we have that suggests that some Neanderthal population used marine resources. There were already things like ochre-stained seashells and clamshell tools that pointed in that direction. But this is direct evidence of harvesting food from the coast. Um, I don't know how some of those animals were obtained. Um, the like, there's no, there's, They haven't published specifics about it. Um, for example, did Neanderthals butcher larger animals like seals and sharks if they washed up on shore? Were they scavenged? Did they hunt them? Did they catch fish with nets? Did they use spears? Oh, maybe the, the dolphins were doulas, like in the... Nope. <laughs> Everyone, don't birth your baby into the ocean, especially not if there's a strong tide. Oh, well, in this case, there's in the Neanderthal case, there's something to be said for the use of nets, or at least to suggest that these Neanderthals could make something like that because of the sheer quantity of shells and other detritus. It was about 800 pounds of stuff per cubic meter. That like that wasn't that's not even sediment. It's just like debris, um, and so, so that these, suggests. Hmm? So like Neanderthals from Maryland. Yeah, they were having crab boils all over the place. Um, it, it suggests that they were hauling bags or baskets of food home. If they if they were able to a mile away, yeah, the the mile back, yeah, okay, because food is in cave, food is they were eating food, food in cave, food came from these ocean. Weren't, these weren't cave dolphins. Oh God, <laughs> don't don't no, and also it's not like they door dashed it, cave dash. They themselves brought the food back. Anyway, yeah, that wasn't the part that was giving me pause. <laughs> <laughs> so this is. Especially interesting because marine resources, um, fish and and sea mammals and things tend to be very high in omega-3s. They got a lot of good fats. They got a lot of, um, it, it's, it's very nutritious, like calorie dense food. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's some speculation that focusing attention on marine resources was beneficial to human evolution. Mm -hmm. Get the big old brain size up. So 
Um, before we move on to the next site, one more quick note about Neanderthals and water. Just to, there are very few Neanderthal sites that give give us a sense of sort of what they were doing around the coast. There are a few, um, a couple beautifully uh, written about in Kindred, but there was a study published in 2019 that suggested that several Neanderthal skulls show evidence of bone damage caused by repeated instances of swimmer's ear or surfer's ear. And so those are tiny bony growths yeah, that appear. Oxytoses? Something. Oxytoses? Oxytoses. Ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-ex-
things. So this was like pre-colonization, like like when the food system was was just disrupted. Yeah, exactly. So it's yeah, it's pre-colonization, but then also into the historic period because these stewardship practices kept happening. It's just that at some point the oyster populations no longer recovered. Why do you keep saying historic period? Not a call out. Uh, because that's a, written records. Hmm. There, there are written records of these practices. Okay. Um, so I guess I was saying it in terms of that only, like that was my only reason for hmm. saying historic okay. post post coloniz- colonization. Yes. Also. Yeah. yeah Cause accurate. I was just thinking about like the sort of, Oh, like it's, it's nicer to say historic oh i wasn't trying to to i know i know that's why that's why i asked yeah that's why i asked you don't have to keep this in if you don't want but like it's sort of like i i just was wondering like is this what the authors used is this like uh Uh, like it just sort of maybe i pulled it for i maybe i subconsciously started use it historic yeah yeah just because i interesting no i'm gonna leave this in because that's a good yeah it's a good thing to question (laughs) yeah because it is something that um it's not like a like a huge shift, you know. You know what I no, mean? No, it just means like it, that it's, we can it's, access that information um, without needing access to without like an needing oral interlocutors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that is why. Yeah, I so used it it makes work. it makes knowledge extraction mm. easier. Yeah, but um, not so yeah, less just, just wanted. Yeah, just wanted. To, well, yeah. Um, you don't. Yeah. So I just wanted to, to ask about that, um, because I really only. I only see that frequently when I see stuff about Australia, um, mm, like interesting, okay. like written by non-Australians, Australians. <laughs> yeah, or like non-indigenous, especially, yeah. especially, yeah. Um, but it's a, a way of 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 just being like, well, the other thing that happened mm. probably was more impactful on the you archaeological mean it record. Like, oh, writing, <laughs> <sighs> yeah. So five to ten thousand years. Which is a very long time for a a, uh, a technology to to persist, um, yeah. persist and and develop. Uh, so things like oyster size over time and the remains of oyster bed cultivation suggest that oysters were actively stewarded. So somebody called them every year and said, um, "Thank you so much for your contributions. Would you be interested in increasing your donation this year?" Um, see, I picture we're going a to be having a little a luncheon. <laughs> oh, see, with their little okay. flocks. <laughs> so we, we have different lived experiences. <laughs> no, you just worked yeah. for you just worked for student life, and I didn't. <laughs> just yeah. um, and that they played a central cultural and dietary role. Um, so, uh, yum, yum. So, and and so, a um, little little bit of a middens callback from our our live show. Of you are what you eat. Yeah, which is um, the recording of which is on the main feed. If you want to go back and listen, if you haven't. Talk about middens. Middens. Um, she got a little cat named Middens. Oh, gosh. <laughs> You're a trash heap. <laughs> I should just call Izzy Middens. No. Little garbage baby. Uh, <laughs> so it shouldn't be surprising that oysters were a huge part of coastal indigenous populations' lives, um, given the sheer scale of shell middens that used to dot the shoreline. It's not just the middens that got overexploited. So oyster populations have suffered as well. So 85% of the world's wild oyster reefs were wiped out in the past 150 years. 
So Europe especially lost nearly all of its naturally occurring oyster beds. Um, And it's not because of population numbers either. So indigenous oyster colonies were regularly used on a pretty massive scale. Um, But those oyster populations, so the ones that we're talking about in this study, like in Australia and in North America, on those two bits of coast, Mm -hmm. big bits, um, (laughs) but but bits nonetheless. Um, Thank you. Big bits. Um, did, who's, ugh, no, no leg to stand on in terms of word choice. Big bits. Um, they, so they didn't crash and disappear until European colonizers began reaching those shores around 500 years ago. So research like this project is not only important for understanding the depth and continuity of indigenous knowledge, technology, and ecological stewardship. Um, so, uh, which is... Which like is is sort of like what we're talking about with mm-hmm. um, the science like, episode. They, yeah, that this is something that, um, like here's an opportunity for thinking about, um, like ways for so like over the course of five to ten thousand years, you have shifts in climate. Mm-hmm. Shifts in population um, size and populations and intensification, um, and yet. of of use, yeah. And so, so looking at at um, like how systems. did people keep these these uh, oyster beds, these resource areas? How do they keep them healthy? How do they keep them producing without yeah. just totally crashing the population? Yeah, um, yeah. So. Um, so uh, I'm going to read some excerpts from an interview with one of the researchers, Dr. Marco Hatch. So the interview comes from um, a conservation website called mangabay.com. Um, and uh, I'm going to start with the question posed to Dr. Hatch. <laughs> Could you give us a glimpse of what indigenous aquaculture looked like about 5,000 to 10,000 years ago? on the Pacific Northwest coast. Uh, Dr. Hatch says the Olympia oyster would be, would form large beds or reefs and shallow muddy bays in areas at the interface of freshwater and marine water. Estuaries. Yes. Um, like, uh, at Emeryville, what's now Emeryville, California, the shell man, shell man street where I talked about yep. in our, our catching up episode. That is an estuary. Oh, it used to be. <laughs> now it's a parking lot. <laughs> No, no, the water next oh, to it. Oh yeah, yes, it's, um, yes, it's that's a still marshy, an estuary. Brackish. Estuary. It's an it's an estuary under an interstate. Yeah. Often, shellfish beds were tended or stewarded by a certain family. So when you're out in the water, you wouldn't just stop on any beach and pick oysters or dig clams. That section of beach belonged to a certain family. If you had a connection to that family, you could go across. You could go access those resources. If you didn't, you'd either have to ask permission. Um, so there was somebody in charge of all those different spots. It wasn't just a free for all because of that practice. It allowed somebody to have that understanding of that spot and be able to watch it through time. Uh, they could decide there's a fair amount of oysters out there and probably harvest some and open up more space for others or wait a bit before harvesting. If it's not looking good, it was a reciprocal relationship between families and the beaches and with those families and one another about who went where there was a system of governance control. It looks like you sort so, of started a thought there and then didn't finish it, but they, they either have either have to ask permission or a not get oysters or B steal the oysters. Right. Either, either you, um, 
you you either ask or you're in breach of social contract. Yeah, exactly. Like that's, yeah. yeah. Um, so the implications aren't just like learning about the past. Um, there's, there's really important relevance for conservation work here too. So I'm going to go back to this article a little bit before that conversation. So Hatch's work also helped revive the populations of Olympia oysters. So Australia Lurida. Oh. Lurid oysters. Um, the only native oyster on the U.S. West Coast. Uh, so they are cultural delicacy and ceremonially important oyster for the indigenous peoples living along the Pacific, the Pacific Northwest Coast. Um, by the 1900s, due to over-harvesting and habitat degradation, these oysters almost went extinct. Mm. Hatch's research culturally helped understand... for brunchers. Hatch's research helped understand where Olympia oyster larvae travel as they grow and if they could settle in different restored locations to improve their genetic diversity. Yeah. Uh, so that's really, it's really interesting. Yeah. And I. Clam gardens, uh, like, oyster gardens. I, yeah. And like, I can't. And like, here I am the one who like, can't understand how like. I I still we'll see how I like we're halfway through the episode we'll see how I feel at the end still think that man has no business entering the ocean <laughs> just what about floating on top of it just a little bit hmm. I guess a case could be made hmm. but I <laughs> I and so just like the thought of being able to have a like a a robust like technological understanding of how a part of the ocean works. What a specific ecosystem Mm -hmm. and a specific organism within that ecosystem. When that thing lives underwater (laughs) and you don't, and it's like hard to see underwater and it's hard, you know, like can be out of the water. Like they can, um, they can survive low tide where they're exposed. So you'd be able to observe like you wouldn't have to look underwater for oysters. You could see them. But like the, the whole process, like I just, I, yeah. I still just like, like it is such a, so you've only got like a few hours each day to like know what's up with them yeah. uh, before the the tide comes back Unless in. Unless you're French, because I remember reading That's- at some point that <laughs> French oyster farmers, and this is like in the 1800s, 1900s, um, would, they trained their oysters basically um, to, they'd force them to close their shells. Like they'd tap on the shells with a metal rod Um during low tide to force the oysters, I think, to close their shells so they would gradually be able to farm the oysters farther and farther away from the tide line. So like they'd be used to keeping their shells closed and only being covered by water for smaller parts of the day. Again, this is from you know the musty box of Anna's poorly remembered things. I know. Things I and read. a lot of them like Introduce me to new ways in which, like, French cuisine introduces cruelty. Yeah. Don't get me started on ortolans. No. Yep. No, thank you. So, but that's but, a... So, so that's, I... That's like, for the Dirt in the Sky episode. <laughs> They're sky foods. So, <laughs> one more quick example. Of ways that archaeologists can get at marine food ways. And maybe a question listeners have in mind at this point in the episode. What about whales? None of my business. Yeah. 
So the collective <laughs> The collective term for aquatic mammals like whales, dolphins, and porpoises is cetaceans, from the name of the Greek goddess of whales, Keto. Uh, yep. And they've been sort of understudied in zooarchaeology, except in the context of Arctic cultures. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but marine mammal exploitation is central to those cultures' foodways. So it comes and also up. that also that SoundCloud rapper I know. Yeah. Nope. You don't need to blow up his spot. So I came across a 2021 paper published in the Journal of Archaeological Science reports by Yuri Vandenherk, Kevin Riley, and Mike Buckley. Mike Buckley is is the guy who yeah, advanced advanced uh, Zoom studies. Promoted? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so this study combines historical sources and the identification of zooarchaeological cetacean remains from the London sites of Bermondsey Abbey, Westminster Abbey, specifically the Solarium of Westminster Abbey, Winchester Palace, Vintry, St. Peter's Hill, and Trig Lane, which is right across from Calculus Drive. I'm kidding. It's a math there? joke. Hmm? The... There were bits of whales in London. Stick with me. Uh, but also London is a port city. Yeah, a lot of whales? Yeah. I mean, they, there's a little bit. It's, it's, it's yeah. to the west. Um, so. <laughs> researched. Whales. Whales. I mean, I made that joke too about two paragraphs from now. I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Later. Okay. So researchers for this study, researchers used zooarchaeology by mass spectrometry, zooms, and morphological analysis, whose bone is this, to identify marine species. And so I'm going to quote from the article. Quote, the historical and zooarchaeological evidence from London indicates that cetacean meat was indeed associated with a high status diet, in particular the ecclesiastical diet, though some form of commercialization of cetacean meat also took place. On occasion... Whalebone was used for the creation of bone artifacts or tools, primarily during the Middle Saxon period. Additionally, it is suggested that active whaling might occasionally have been undertaken, potentially already from the Middle Saxon period onwards. However, the majority of the remains were probably acquired through opportunistic scavenging of stranded individuals. I mean, Britain does have a lot of coastline. It's a small island. Um, so, end quote from that paper. Uh, and this is the thing that I pulled that is a weird law that I think you're probably not going to like. So pre priests, priests ate, priests ate whale. Well, probably wealthy, wealthy, well, like, wealthier the, clergy. Uh, but yes, like the ecclesiastic. So like a so like, like a, a, a an abbot, like a, or a bishop. Like a bishop, yeah, bishop eating whale. And monarchs and the nobility, of course. So jumping forward a little bit in time, but staying in England, because, of course, England has a centuries-old law about who owns whales. It's not the Prince of Wales. This is from the .gov website of the city of Kent, which is, in fact, in England. This law is the Statute Prerogative Regis, which was... <laughs> established by Edward II in 1324 CE-ish, states that although the crown has sovereign dominion over the sea around the British Isles, it has no general property in the fish and marine mammals in it, except for cetaceans and sturgeon, as in, like, the most valuable of the sea creatures. These are royal fish and belong to the crown. The chief requirement of the royal prerogative nowadays is that stranded royal fish, so 
stations and sturgeon are reported to the receiver of wreck. It's like me when you come to visit. Just kidding. <laughs> Love you. Who, That's like kind of my current job title. <laughs> yeah. Who will then pass the information to the Natural History Museum and other relevant bodies. The receiver of wreck can be contacted via the Lohu Coast Guard. So, I mean, that that is not really as relevant to this episode. I just wanted to share it. But it is interesting to think that humans interacting with slash seeing slash finding slash eating such big animals. Um, of course, like prestige things would come into play. Of course, like conspicuous consumption would mm. be would would come into play. Um, it is truly unsurprising that as soon as there was like a rigid feudal system in place, it became exclusive to the nobility. Because, well, because well, I'm thinking of two things that um, you can get out of royal fish. One caviar, caviar, mm-hmm. and the other is ambergris mm-hmm. and oil. Yeah, whale oil for sure. Yeah, that's definitely yeah. Yeah, and as for ambergris, I'm not sure if ambergris is ambergris if it is still inside the whale or if it if floating in the ocean does something to it like to you know because it's basically uh sperm whale puke slash poo actually mm-hmm. it is, it's closer to poo it's not it's not barf um i wonder if you could process it yeah interesting. by whatever like like but these are two things that are um again like luxury very items. readily yeah luxury items and also something you can make money off of yeah just like now um the the crown gets like gets to lease it's like wind farms yeah back to the people mm-hmm. um similar but less fishy um i've also included in the show notes fishy. <laughs> a little bit fishy. Fishy. Hey. i've also included in the show notes um we don't we don't have time really to talk about this but there's a, i found a really cool article in current anthropology about looking for evidence of fermented foods including fish but the article went beyond fish to like soybeans and other material um, in prehistoric Japan and Korea. So that's going to be in the show notes. I want to check it out. So, oh, but you were right. I hate that law. Yeah. Sorry. But it is interesting. But so now it's basically like a guy that you, that you call to like, there's a strand or there's a beach a whale toilet. carcass yeah. Yeah. off. So it's like animal, dead animal control. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. But, but you know, in the 14th century, it was like, well, Somebody tell somebody so that somebody can tell the king or whatever. So yeah, let's take a quick ad break and then we'll be back with category two, not food. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. 
Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Welcome back. So this portion of the show is devoted to, as we said, not food. So non-marine resource, nope. non-food marine resources. So it's like, oh, it's so the stuff I can't eat. So it's like yeah. shrimp. Oh, no, not Brianna. stuff you can't. Yeah, not stuff that you can't eat because of a dietary issue. Uh, stuff you can't eat because it's not, it's non-nutritive. It's not edible. Yeah. Oh, non-nutritive. Okay. Mm. I'm um, a scientist. So... <laughs> for our purposes that mostly means the non-food parts of food animals uh like shells and bones um although we can call back to that ceramics episode the dirt pot cast mm-hmm. um and that one type of arctic pottery that was um the tempered with seal blood is that what it was it was uh it i was, guess it's, it's not counts as a temper it wasn't really a temper because it was like the, glue. Yeah, because the pottery yeah, yeah, wasn't it was, fired. Fair enough. So yeah, it was sort of this <laughs> pot glue. We're gonna start with bones, and we're gonna go big. Uh, so if you lived on a, in a coastal landscape with very few trees, and a big whale washes up on the shore, or you hunt one, uh, what do you do? You can make a house from its bones. Yep, you can. You can. This isn't and just did. like this isn't just like Pinocchio. Well, right? It was in Pinocchio. They was like made the little fire and then is that not happen? Yeah. Okay. We, we talked right. about this. So this is probably my frame of reference. <laughs> so um the indigenous Thule people um who occupied Arctic regions from what is today Alaska over to Greenland. Yep. Uh, so, Big old swath um, of territory. Yeah. In winter, family groups often stayed in, and also like Thule people still exist. They are the predecessors of the Inuit cultures. Okay. Okay. So I know like Thule was like a, what was like a, uh, uh, like an assemblage, like a, like yes. A, yeah. So like there's a, a Thule ar- archaeological. It's kind of like how the Jomon culture in Japan sort of preceded the later sort of groups okay. that that splintered out of that. So so Thule isn't like an like an ethnicity or like linguistic term. I think it refers to the material culture, but I'm not actually I I because there's I remember, no specific descendant community that is Thule. I right. Okay. I remember okay, great. I couldn't okay, thank you. My one class on the archaeology of North America that I took 15 years ago. We have so much to learn. 
So much to learn. Let's learn about this. Um, so in the winter, family groups often stayed in specific, specific, Pacific. specific seat. Nope. Atlantic. Go ahead. In the winter, family groups often stayed in specific seasonal locations where they had built whalebone houses. So these houses were partially dug into the ground for added insulation. The structures were made of whalebone, supplemented with driftwood, and covered with animal skins, sod, and moss. So, uh, quoting now from the Canadian Encyclopedia. Typically, the Thule Winter House was oval in shape. The external diameters were between about three and nine meters, so about three and nine yards, <laughs> and, might be dug, <laughs> and might be dug as much as one meter into the ground. How many yards is and, that? Juan. Uh, a narrow underground entrance passageway, a few meters long, angled up into the floor, provided an effective cold trap. Cold air would be displaced to the lower part of the passage away from the living space. Because the cold floor air sinks, hot air rises. Uh-huh. 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 The floors and walls were lined with stones or other solid materials, end quote. So often there would be a, a stone or wood sleeping platform towards the back of the house that could be lined with furs. And so these houses provided warmth and comfort in some fairly extreme uh, cold weather conditions. Yeah. So as I was researching this, I encountered several articles about the dimensions of the Thule whalebone house and how that may have been linked to cosmological or ideological beliefs. So I, I don't mm. know enough about this subject mm-hmm. to really weigh in, but it brings up the question again of like, who's doing this research and who is it for? Because the researchers that I looked into, um, I'm not sure. There's one, one guy that whose background I couldn't find much out about, but they don't seem to be of indigenous descent. I don't know though, for sure. I can't say for sure. But they don't have like a like a heritage relationship with the community. What with like they with do, this, like they like, they seem to work closely with these communities. Which sorry, is, like a personal heritage, oh, yeah, no. like their own heritage is not. To my knowledge, of, I couldn't okay. find anything that said that directly. Um, okay. But uh, it seems that particular elements of the whale skeleton reflected social status, as in who got access to the good bones for building, like the jaw. Um, and so for an animal like a bowhead whale, um, who's, who's, you know, that's the species that is often identified in these houses. The jaw forms this huge arch that a human Go could. Go look at it. Okay. Uh, bowhead. B-O-W-H-E-A-D whale. They're the ones that bowhead kind of have a, a cute little smile because of the shape of their jaw. Um, but also like it's frowning. It's well, big. Yeah, it's a big, big. Look at it. Oh, wow. It lives up there. You could also Makes Google Thule whalebone house and see an example. But I wanted to see those. its jaw. I just wanted yeah. to see its jaw like in context. Yeah. It, on the I'm whale. I'm a context person. Mm-hmm. So wow, look at that jaw. It's big. Jaw. Yeah. So like a person could stand comfortably underneath it. With, I see like, that. There's probably a little dude like swimming under it. Yeah. With their arms up. Like, ah. um, so it's a perfect material for the main like structural beam of a house. And so some of the articles went further. Like I have no problem in terms of like cultural things. I have no problem with the suggestion that like status is reflected in who got the good bones. No issue there. However, uh, some of the articles went further to say that things like this quote from an abstract of a 2008 article in the journal Inuit Studies. I would be curious to see who the articles. Do we have a sense of like social hierarchy or 
like degree of egalitarianism for the Thule? Yeah. Uh, I don't, but that's because I don't know enough about that group. That's why I'm like, yeah. Question Maybe some people, somebody's got to get the good bones. Yeah. Maybe it's a, is it like who gets there first? Is it a respect thing? I don't know. Um, I would be curious. Is it not a, is it not a thing? Yeah. I I would be curious about the, uh, the author list in the journal Inuit studies, but anyway, here's that quote from the 2008 article quote informed by historic North Alaskan Inupiat analogies. Uh, the positioning of various elements within the entrance tunnel in particular appears to have been related to whale symbolism, end quote. Again, do not know much about <laughs> so, that. So there are certain aspects that hold meaning? Is that? Yes. And maybe the front of oh. the house displays those things. Mm. Again, I I am at sea so aspects. Here. Aspects hold meaning and are enigmatic expressed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ah. So again, it's my understanding cool. that the Thule people are the predecessors of the Inuit mm-hmm. groups that still live in Arctic regions today. And so Inupiat is a sort of subgroup of that, but I don't know to what extent they are a descendant community, like to what extent there is continuity of that culture. So could you talk to an Inuit person now and say, Hey, how were things when the Thule were around? Oh, please don't do that. I mean, I'm not gonna. <laughs> just, I just like, don't know. They call them North Alaskan Inupiat analogies. So I don't know how analogous yeah. those analogies were. Yeah. I mean, props yeah. to them for not looking like not sort of crystallizing um, indigenous technology as sort of just the past. Yeah. Or sort of like relic. Um, or relict. Which is it? It's relic, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Relic is the, the noun. Relict is the adjective. Really? Pretty sure. Wow. As in uh, relict, derelict. They're both adjectives. We're all learning things today. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't, I don't know. If you do know. The Dirt Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to learn from you, please. Yeah. And thank you. Um, And now, a case study from Iron Age Scotland, or what's now Scotland. Yeah. um, That's got some real Clad Holland vibes, which, great. Yep. I'm I'm always always seeking those. Oh, God. (laughs) Um, Yeah, because like... Yep. What was... What what were you guys doing? What's going on over there? Just like... In general. Yeah. Not just, like, not even just with bones. Just like, what you doing? Y'all okay? Um, <laughs> so this is from a 2019 Smithsonian Magazine article. Yeah, and I excerpted here rather than paraphrasing because the sort of bemused tone that the author has just really, really did it for me. Quote. When archaeologists excavated a Scottish Iron Age site called the Cairns in 2016, they discovered a hollowed out whale vertebra filled with a trio of unexpected objects. I just saw the next one. I'm just like, come on. (laughs) A human jawbone and the remains of two newborn lambs. Dated to about the mid-2nd century CE, the vessel was propped near the entrance of a brock. 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 
Yep. Brach. Yeah, probably brach. Yep. Brach. Brach. A type, a type of roundhouse. A new DNA analysis adds a new piece to this perplexing puzzle. As Hugh Williams reports for BBC News, the team's preliminary findings suggest the bone belongs to a fin whale. Given the fact that fin whales are the second largest whale species on Earth, um, archaeologist Martin Carruthers says this determination may help archaeologists address a much debated question. What's going on over there? <laughs> no, the question is just like, uh-huh. <laughs> did Iron Age Scots actively hunt the massive whales or did they simply make the most of animals swept ashore? The whale remains found among the roughly 100 marine animal bones unearthed at the Cairns constitute one of the world's largest troves of prehistoric whale bones. So before whales had history. Uh, DNA analysis shows the bones came from larger species, including sperm whales, humpback and and minky whales. Minky. 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 Like like baby blankets. (laughs) Minky, um, as well as smaller species like dolphins and porpoises, end quote. So, what? <laughs> exactly. And do the researchers explain? Like the things in the hollowed out whalebone? No, they don't. Um, except to suggest they may present, right, may represent part of a ritual of closing of the roundhouse. Like, don't, don't use this one anymore. <laughs> this one's, this one's canceled. I don't know. Was a roundhouse like a, a, communal like a domestic living, space? Yeah. It, well, it could be, depending on the size, but yes, it could be a living space. It could be a communal indoor space. I guess that's also where roundhouse kick comes from. Hmm. Hmm. What? Like a roundhouse kick? Is it? Yeah. But how would it come from that? I don't know. It just has the same, just has the same name. Okay. Well, you... You talk now. I'm going to look up fin whale. Okay. Fin whale. I've spelled it wrong. <laughs> That's how a whale uh, ends a short film. Fin. Fin. So if you're thinking, listeners. It just looks like a whale. Yeah. I just don't know what I expect. It's a big whale. <laughs> the second biggest whale. So if you're thinking, listener, well, duh, those bones must have been from scavenging because whales are just too big. Well, hang on. Because that Smithsonian article linked to a different article from the BBC about rock art from South Korea that appears to depict whale hunting. And that art dates to a range of time between 6,000 and 1,000 BCE. The art also shows evidence that humans used harpoons, floats, and lines to catch their prey, which included sperm whales, right whales, and humpbacks. So the idea that in Iron Age Scotland, folks were hunting whales not out of the realm of possibility. So lastly, did you, you're what? Anna, these whales are so big. They're extremely big. And yet we like, but we know that Arctic hunters, uh, they're so big. We're able to hunt whales with relatively few people because they used poison. So like, hmm? so lastly, yes, Hmm. I just, they're very big. They're just so big. So big. I don't, Buoyancy helps a lot with sort of how big a species can get on Earth now that our atmosphere is what it is. I was thinking about this when I was laying outside reading and I like rolled over on my tummy and after a while my rib cage started hurting and I was like, if only we're in the ocean. Yeah, if only I were floating. I'm just like. They're big. 
You heard it here on the dirt first. Whales. Just go out there. So big. Okay. Go. Okay. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just really, this isn't me. This isn't me. This is not affect. I'm just like really Mm -hmm. real big. And lastly, go on. (laughs) Lastly, in this whale hunting mini category, uh, I wanted to include the Maori. So according to legend, the Maori people arrived in New Zealand riding on the back of a whale and whales feature prominently in Maori art and storytelling. And so thanks to a method that, that these researchers in this article call DNA barcode analysis, <laughs> but that. I thought, so the way you wrote it is like Maori art storytelling and like, thanks to a method they call DNA barcode. I was like, what? No, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. Like part of storytelling. You know, the researchers call it DNA barcode analysis. I know, but I thought that it was like Maori storytellers call it this. Oh, no, they don't. No, <laughs> what... no, no, no. No, no. In Maori <laughs> legend, they don't call it that. Nope. Uh, but but this process, it sounds a lot to me like zooarchaeology by mass spectrometry, again, which is zooms. Uh, it's basically like powdering up a bunch of bones and then doing a DNA analysis. But Archaeologists have gotten a lot of insight from otherwise unidentifiable scraps of bone from Maori archaeological sites. So, quoting from a 2018 article in Science Magazine, a quote, Researchers pinpointed 110 near-perfect matches to known species. Until now, archaeologists usually assumed that whale bones at sites in New Zealand were from pilot whales that had been scavenged after they beached. But the DNA barcodes identified orca, True dolphins, QVA's huh? beaked whales, fin whales, again, so big, and southern, so big. southern right whales. This is a left whale? Nope. It's not like Twix. This suggested. <laughs> they're below, they're in the southern hemisphere, so it's. <laughs> they, yeah, they circle in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. What's a true dolphin? What's a false dolphin? <laughs> it's a fish in a dolphin suit. A dolphin of the the genus Delphinus. Great. Thanks, Merriam-Webster. Starting a debate speech. Merriam-Webster defines dolphin. <laughs> oh, here, I, nine true dolphin stories. Nope. These intriguing dolphins love Close people, that page. save lives, Close. talk to each other, and one almost dies of loneliness. Close that page. So, uh, chicken soup for a dolphin soul. Mm-hmm. So... The identification of these species in this study suggested to the researchers that people were hunting the smaller whales and driving them into shallow water with boats and then harpooning them, end quote. So that same article also talked about similar research methods being used on animal remains from Gibraltar and then elsewhere in the Mediterranean region. And so there may have been... They got fin whales there. Yeah. There may have been a forgotten Roman whaling industry, and that's cool. Uh, But my favorite line was this, quote... The identification of the 11th presumed whalebone threw the researchers for a loop. It belonged to an elephant. And one of the researchers said, that's why it's good to use these methods. Who knows how many other bones out there have been misidentified? End quote. So who knows that's indeed? not a true dolphin. No. No, related, but not. I mean. What? Well, I mean, it's a mammal. No. Elephants are great at swimming, but they probably didn't swim there. But... But it's cows that are huh? closely related closely related to For some reason whales? I feel like it's elephants. And I don't know if that's true. We don't have to 
I'm gonna we'll look it up because I'm gonna talk now. Okay. So and finally for this section, we're going fishing. <laughs> that I have in brackets. Have you ever gone fishing? Did you enjoy it? <laughs> yeah, I want to know. Um, have you ever gone fishing? Yeah. Um, I didn't enjoy it. Okay. I'm bad at it. I'm exceptionally bad at it. I once went to a fishing derby with my papa, um, like where they, they like uh, they stock a lake and then they're just they, like, they yeah they stock like a, a little lake and then they they do uh, it's like a fundraiser thing for you know de- the Department of Natural Resources or something I don't know I was five um, and we did it and I didn't catch anything and my papa thought that was so funny because they were like basically like flopping out of the lake and I still could not catch one <laughs> um, but I have. Oh God, I did catch catfish once and then they did that death rattle at me. Um, and I still see that Ooh. fish in my dream sometimes. Um, but I love going fishing, um, but I don't like fishing. Okay. Also, I'm bad at it. So I love sitting next, next to a to body of water. water. Yeah. Not doing much. Well, so we're <laughs> in what is today... Mexico on uh, Isla Cedros, Baja. So would you like to know the answer? It's killer whales and cows share a common ancestor, but manatees evolved from the ancestors of elephants. That's what I was thinking of. So this is the site of the earliest unequivocal evidence for the use of line and hook fishing by Pleistocene human populations. Bet they were better at it than me. Single piece shell hooks, as opposed to composite pieces lashed or glued together, dating to at least 11,000 years ago, were found here, along with lots of fish remains. So the hooks worked. And the people were good Maybe. at it, which is good because in, in your case, it wasn't like a, a survival. No. The consequences weren't like you don't catch, you don't eat. It was just like you don't catch, your I mean, papa was, laughs at you. <laughs> yeah. <Aww. laughs> Quote, the stratigraphic levels from which the fish hooks were recovered contained a diverse assemblage of fish remains, including deep water species indicative of boat use. Thus, some of the earliest known inhabitants of the Pacific coast of the Americas employed shell hook and line technology for offshore marine fishing, at least by the Pleistocene Holocene transition, if not earlier. End quote. Um, So. okay, yeah, so there's implications there for like the peopling of the of North and South America, because if fishing technology shows that people could go out into the water and do deep sea fishing, they could probably do some deep sea boating and yeah. they could have not well, had a land like, route necessarily. Uh, I mean, anybody can go out on the ocean, but you have to be able to get back. That's the key. Where you That's meant really to go. the kicker. Yep. So the, that is both an important part of like deep sea fishing and Just existence by the sea and, and traveling. Yeah. yeah. Like what a good segue because we're going to do one more quick ad break and then we'll wrap it up by talking about the ocean as a way of getting from one place to another on purpose again. or otherwise. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality T-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. 
So how do we approach talking about the ocean as a means of transport? My Cautiously. Inst- indeed. My instinct is always to look for the earliest example, um, just as a, a place to start. And the first thing I thought of was the vegetation raft theory for how hominins like Homo floresiensis got from the mainland to the islands where they ended up. In searching, like intentionally, or they were like, or oh, just like no. how they got there, exactly. And then they like floated out, and they're like, guess we'll meet, like, yep. or like, that's, that's did the they theory. have? But no, like, was it? Did they have agency in the situation? Unknown. So in searching that topic, but but a highly relevant question, because in searching that topic, I found this Smithsonian Magazine headline from 2020. More than 30 million years ago, monkeys rafted across the Atlantic to South America. Fossil teeth uncovered in Peru revealed that an extinct family of primates thought to have lived only in Africa made it across the ocean. That was the, the so this title and like subheading. A DreamWorks feature. Yeah. So the article, though, is by Riley Black, who is a rock star paleontologist and science writer, and I trust her with all things fossil. So has a book, several books, new one coming out soon. That's what I thought. Yeah. I thought I saw that on Publishers mm-hmm. Lunch <laughs> and I went, oh, yeah, we're doing So for uh, for my day job, we're doing um, an episode on Brontosaurus and the book is about the Brontosaurus. And so Riley Black is interviewed for that episode. And we're also doing like a, a crossover. It's going to be really fun. I think it's in October. We're doing a crossover. No, no, no. Sorry. Brains On is doing a crossover with one of the other shows on that network. Uh, one of the other kids podcast we can do a brontosaurus episode but it's not terribly relevant to archaeology so you ask did these monkeys have boat technology no but the fact that a group of them survived an ocean voyage and enough of them landed on a different continent to start a viable breeding population really speaks to the feasibility of hominins doing a similar thing whether it was deliberate or not like i still know that I just don't know if that would be the right time for me to start a family. Yeah, you'd have to um, process some trauma first, probably. So fossil hominin expert Dr. Chris Stringer, writing for Nature, says, quote, If the ancestors of Homo floresiensis reached Flores, perhaps they also dispersed to other islands. And the experiment in human evolution revealed in Liang, B-U-A, call back to like episode two, Liang Bua, which is the, yeah. the cave, um, might have equally remarkable parallels elsewhere. For example, on Sulawesi, the Philippines, and Timor. The possibility of accidental rafting on mats of vegetation in such a tectonically active region must also be considered. In the 2004 Mm. Indian Ocean tsunami, some people who survived on floating debris were dispersed more than 150 kilometers. So if the Homo floresiensis lineage had a more primitive origin than the oldest known Homo erectus fossils so far identified in Asia, then we would have to reevaluate the dominant explanation for how humans arose and spread from Africa. Because floresiensis is supposedly, or is thought to be um, evolved from Homo erectus, somewhere between mainland and Flores. So that opens up a whole ocean just, like full- need to lay down yeah like i just it's a lot and it opens a whole ocean full of kettles of fish that we do not have time for in this episode so let's move on for now yeah oh so yeah this but also this just um i was in that part of the world just a mere five years ago so sweaty my 
I was so sweaty. You sent me a picture because I texted you complaining how hot I was and you were like, well, look how sweaty I was five years ago. <laughs> no, okay. it was it was my my phone because you've seen how like my phone like completely like like owns me yeah. like with my memories where it's like, here's a photo of you sobbing. <laughs> so it's, it was like, Oh, look at this. Look at this vacation you took. And it's just like all me, like the same color as my bright pink shirt. And just like beads of sweat condensation on my face. Cleansing. Um, ah, yeah, it was, it was, it was great. Um, so let's move on specifically to the Island of Crete. Um, I kept accidentally typing island of create when i was writing this and that sounds like a tech bro workspace and i hate it it's like a like an innovation hub yeah yeah like that's or like a, a fabrication station yeah yeah the maker, those, so the islands lab. are the little 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 maker lab yeah, yeah. We get it. You're a 3D printer. Crete has been an <laughs> island for more than 5, 000, 5 million years. Even longer than um, 5,000. So, no land bridge there, folks. Nope. Uh, so in 2010, when archaeologists found stone tools on the island dating back to around 130,000 years ago, that was a pretty big deal. I remember hearing about that. Yeah. My professor was on that team. Maybe that's why I, I probably told you. Some of the archaeologists who found the tools even suggested that based on the typology, which is very similar to Acheulean. Um, did I say that right? I say Acheulean, but I've heard it both ways, so I don't know. Acheulean. Acheulean, because it's it's uh, named after a site, Saint Acheul. Yeah. So. Yeah. They could be up to 700,000 years old, which like. Maybe Seems like a bit but, of a stretch, but so but I don't know how much of a stretch yeah. if it's it if it's already like a hundred and is it like full a, splits like fiber fibers are are tearing. <laughs> <laughs> so um, more than two thousand stone artifacts, including those hand axes, were collected on the southwestern shore of Crete near the town of Plakias. Doctor Cr- Curtis Runnels, who has thirty years' experience in Stone Age research. Well, now 40? Probably. I he's Was this, semi-retired. Was this a 2010 article? Yes. Who had, who had, who as of, as of, of 2010, yeah. Uh, had 30 years experience in Stone Age research, said that an analysis by him and three geologists, quote, left not much doubt on the age of the site and the tools must be even older, end quote. The kiffs, the, the kiffs and cliffs. <laughs> The cliffs and caves above the shore, the researchers said, have been uplifted by tectonic forces where the African plate goes under and pushes up the European plate. Yep. The exposed uplifted layers represent the sequence of geologic periods that have been well studied and dated, in some cases correlated to the established dates of glacial and interglacial periods of the most recent ice age. In addition, the team analyzed the layer bearing the tools and determined that the soil had been on the surface 130,000 to 190,000 years ago. Dr. Runnels said he considered this a minimum age for the tools themselves. They include not only quartz hand axes, but also cleavers and scrapers, all of which are in the Acheulean style. The tools could have been made. The tools could have been made millenniums before they became, as it were, frozen in time on the Creighton Cliffs. Yeah. Um, so Thanks, in, end of 
quote there. Um, but okay. So they became visible hmm? through tectonic action. No, like okay, tectonic so action it. explains the topography of Greece. I mean, of Crete basically. Okay. Cause okay. Cause I got, I mean, also I was reading aloud, so I wasn't really processing it. Yeah. So, okay. Help me understand this. So that is just, so was this like deeply excavated that it had to get through 130,000 years of dirt? Did it, has it been pushed up as part of tectonic action over the last, like possibly up to three quarters of a million years? Yeah. Like the, the upper limit? Is that something Both of that... those things that you said are the case. Like these, wow. these tools have been excavated, but also tectonic uplift is probably part of why they are where they are now or were. Um, I want to ask a question. Mm. And you may not have an answer ready for me that's right now. Fine. That's okay. Probably but not. I, <laughs> I want to ask about like excavations and excavated materials in sort of the depths of time, like thinking about okay. 130 to 200,000 years ago or further back, sure. like going into like the stone age and before uh-huh. and sort of the um, thinking about excavations and like the great rift Valley and like places like, and like where you worked. Yeah. Um, it really depends on deposition so, rates of sediment. And so is so is that is that what it is or are there situations where like something gets kind of like you know it was it with the it was deposited three quarters of a million years ago and just since then stuff's been going on and it's like slowly like come up and become sort of eroded or visible like the part of that help help me understand how something that old so in this case 130,000 years ago how something that old can be excavated because I think about the things that I have excavated in the time periods that I've worked in and it is kind of like a um I also work in highly aeolian environments worked and so just thinking about like it's not that old when you are comparing it to the types of work that like paleoanthropologists are doing or even like this kind of stuff in Crete. So in Help this understand in this specific instance, I don't know to what extent tectonically Crete is still active. Like I don't know what the, the rate of uplift is. But in this specific case, these tools were found in shelters, like in cave sites or rock shelters. Okay. So deposition really doesn't play in apart right, from okay. anything that made its way into the cave. And so the caves, the cliffs and caves have moved because of tectonic uplift. So they are probably at a slightly higher elevation than they were whenever they were inhabited by whoever made oh these God. tools. Amber has to lie down okay. again. Um, <laughs> but yeah, in this specific instance, the tools are from habitation sites, not just like out in the open. Okay. Yeah. And so that's, and and so at that point, what you're dealing with in terms of uh, deposition and like rates of deposition, it's a matter of like how many other populations have lived there. Yeah. Or if stuff blows into the cave or, um, I don't know how coastal these caves are. If like water could wash in, if it's, I I don't know. Um, the other thing is 
I mean, the thing that I want to emphasize here is what that means, because five million years without a land bridge from the mainland, that is well before these people got there. So that means that they traveled on the water. Any, any, any humans existed. Yeah. Right. Any of our lineage, like from it's before Australopiths, it's before. um, Yeah. So. Whoever yeah. got to the island. Pro-console. I don't know. <laughs> Great memory, though. Like, excellent remembering Thanks. that one <laughs> proto-ape. But, okay, so so that is... So they had to have traveled so across they ha- from somewhere. Okay. Did they have boats? I don't know. Was it a vegetation raft situation? I don't know. But people got there and brought tools and then made more tools. Also, it's impressive that they made hand axes out of quartz because that is not an easy stone to work. Very hard. It's very very hard and it's not, it doesn't fracture in the same way that like. It's just like a really hard stone. Yes. In terms of like moss. Yeah. Moss. Yeah, but also it's crystalline structure means that it breaks funny, like unpredictably, not in the nice way that flints and chirts do. Okay. So lastly. Yeah. I want to highlight a story very briefly that we talked about in the most recent episode of Old News, which you can listen to if you join at the absolute dirtbag level over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. So we're on the island of Malta. Amber, can you tell us where the island of Malta is located? It's off. It's it's between the coast of North Africa and Italy. Yep. I try to explain it as the bit of frosting coming off the cannoli that is Sicily that the boot of Italy is kicking. Amber didn't like that. So I'm just going to summarize the, the abstract of this paper, but basically um, scientists uh, compared genomes of three different ancient populations on the Island of Malta. And they were doing this in an effort to figure out why use of the temples on Malta um, declined in the third millennium BC. So they used genetic data from, Maltese individuals and compared them with genomes of other Europeans. And in this case, it seems like um, the oceans around Malta, instead of being sort of a a thoroughfare, were a barrier to travel and thus to genetic exchange. So the population in Malta kind of declined because it was pretty insular, literally. Um, So again, full story is on old news at patreon.com. But it's really interesting that, you know, we can think of the ocean as a pathway. Sometimes it's a barrier. Sometimes it gives us things. Sometimes it takes things away. The ocean can be a scary place for some humans and a home for other humans. Uh, Aquaman. Aquaman. He's not a human, I think. I don't know. I don't either. Okay, fine. Well, you know, like that's misleading name then. Aquaman. Yeah. So our relationship with the sea is complex and fascinating. Mine and Amber specifically, but also the human relationship with the sea. And we're looking forward to exploring it further with you this month, listeners. The dirt. Yeah. Sea. Yeah. Yeah. It should be fun. Uh, Well, that's going to do it for this episode, this installment. And so listeners, we will be back in your ears very soon in your swimmers or surfers ears with more 
Ah. <laughs> uh, Eric. Uh, with more oceanic content, which you can find on any of the podcast players of your choice. You can also find it and all of our back catalog over at thedirtpod.com. You can also find us on social media. You can go to Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And all of that, again, if you don't want to go to each of those social media sites, all of those feed directly into our website, thedirtpod.com, where you can also find merch and our syllabus and resources for educators and more. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. Love you. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.